we've been commenting that as we've been going through this chapter of Mark, we've been noticing it's really a Christmas chapter, even if it has nothing to do with the birth of Christ. And I think hopefully we'll find that today as well. Mark chapter 9 and verse 30 tells us, And they departed thence, or from there. You remember last week we studied Jesus healing the boy that had a, a demonic spirit and was rendered mute as a result. And Jesus teaching his disciples about faith and this man who had the father of this boy who cried out, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And they departed from there and passed through Galilee, which was Jesus's, of course, home territory. It was his home region in the northern part of Israel. And he would not that any man should know it. He didn't want anyone to know that he was passing through his home region. Interesting thing. For he taught his disciples and said unto them, The Son of Man is delivered into the hands of men, and they shall kill him. And after that he is killed, he shall rise the third day. But they understood not that saying and were afraid to ask him. I want to ask you this morning if you have ever heard the catchphrase, And now you know the rest of the story. Paul Harvey used that catchphrase on his daily radio broadcast. I remember for years it coming on at 2 p.m. on a particular AM radio station here in town. And I love tuning in to Paul Harvey's the rest of the story. Because it was always a very interesting thing. He would pull out some fact from history or some person and explain to you why there was some aspect of that person's story that you had not remembered or never known before. I tuned into one. I I pulled it up online just to remember it. And it was about a boy named Skinny. His nickname was Skinny. And he was in California. And every day he would go to a fire station, the local fire station with his dog. And one day Skinny showed up at the fire station and he had a black eye. And when they asked him, Skinny, what's going on? How did you get that? He he told the story of, of how there was a bully at at his in his neighborhood and this boy skinny had a had a somewhat feminine sounding first name and he would get teased as a result of that and he couldn't stand up for himself and he he got picked on well it turns out one of the firefighters at at that station was a former professional boxer and he said skinny we need to teach you how to to stand up for yourself to defend yourself and after a few lessons the conflict came again and skinny went toe to toe with that bully and held his own was was a, just an even match and won the respect of his his classmates and his friends that day. Well, you don't know. This is what Paul Harvey is. The rest of the story is you you don't know this man who grew up certainly by his name Skinny, and you don't know him by his first name Marion. But you might know him by his nickname. Those guys at that fire station. The name of the dog was Little Duke. And so they started calling him Big Duke. And you don't know him, I said, by his name Marion, but you probably know him by the name Hollywood gave him, which was John Wayne. And now you know the rest of the story, right? The rest of the story is so, I think, helpful to us because when you're in the middle of the story, it's it's hard to know how the story will end. 
It's like the difference between being in the middle of a just hard-fought athletic contest when it's on the brink, you don't know who's going to win, and between reading about it in the newspaper the next day. I mean, be honest, how many of you Vikings fans turned it off at halftime yesterday? Be honest, how many of you were suffering through it and said, this one's over, when you might have woken up and looked in the newspaper to see the biggest comeback in the history of the National Football League and gotten to know the rest of the story, and you didn't even need to sit there in the middle of it calling for the head coach to be fired, did you? You didn't even need to do that. The rest of the story is something that's critical. And we see it here in Mark chapter 9. The disciples... We're in the middle of the story. They were convinced about who Jesus was, at least most of them. He was the Messiah. He was the chosen one. And yet when Jesus started to try to tell them the rest of the story, I'm going to be killed. I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to rise again from the dead. What was their reaction? They didn't get it. They didn't understand. And even more than that, they were scared to ask. Say, well, why would they have been afraid to ask? Friends, what happened the last time someone decided to stand up to Jesus when he told them about getting killed and said, Jesus, wait a second, that's not going to happen. What happened to him? Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. They might have said, well, that didn't work so well last time. Well, whatever the, the reason, they couldn't come into the true understanding of the rest of the story. They, their minds weren't ready to process it. But friends... Just like reading about something in the newspaper the next day, you have an account of the rest of the story. And as we come here in this Christmas season, you got put on by these wonderful children. You got part of the story. We come to our Christmas season and you turn on the radio station, the secular radio station, and they're singing songs about how Jesus is the Messiah, about how he's the Lord, about how he's the King. And people listen to them and they sing along with them. And yet they don't know the rest of the story. Or even worse, if they know the rest of the story, they don't live like it. It has no real effect on their day-to-day -day life. And so this morning, as we've heard the children present to us part of the story, the birth of Jesus Christ, I want to speak for just a few moments on the rest of the story. The rest of the story from verses 30 through 32 of Mark chapter 9. And ask whether you know the rest of the story, and then ultimately, whether you're living like it during this Christmas season and at all other seasons. There are three things in this passage, I think, that are the rest of the story that Jesus was teaching to his disciples and we need to take for ourselves. The first part of that uh, rest of the story is in Jesus' title. In his title. Notice what he says in verse 31. For he taught his disciples and said unto them, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of man. The Son of of man. Now, this is Jesus' favorite title for himself. If you went through the Gospels and counted all the times that Jesus calls himself the Son of Man, one commentator says it's 78 different times Jesus calls himself the Son of Man. Now, just notice this for a second. If people in your life began calling themselves in the third person, you start to look at them a little bit funny. 
But a decade ago, one of the most famous basketball players, athletes in all the world, LeBron James, gave a press conference to describe why he was leaving his hometown of Cleveland and going to Miami. And do you know what he said? He said, and I'm paraphrasing, but he said, ultimately, I just needed to do what was best for LeBron James. And what LeBron, and, and to do what made LeBron James happy. And some people commented on the fact that he, he was calling himself by his name. We think people who do that are maybe a little bit narcissistic, right? Or a little bit cocky if, if Peter Magnuson begins telling you how Peter Magnuson is, is feeling about things right now. Well, think about Jesus. Why is he referring to himself in the third person? Why is he saying, the son of man, that's me, the son of man has something that he needs to tell you about this. Well, you need to understand what the Son of Man really means. What significance does that have? In one sense, Jesus is referring to himself as a true human being. He wants to emphasize that even though he is the Son of God, he is divine in his nature, he's a human being through and through. As the old creed says, he was very God of very God, but he was also very man of very man, truly man. He was the son of man. But there's something even beyond that. If you were to look in, in Daniel chapter 7 and verses 13 and 14, you would see one of the most important prophecies in all of the Bible regarding the Messiah, Jesus. And Daniel in this vision describes one who he says like the quote son of man coming to the ancient of days. A picture of God himself and being given a kingdom and being given power and being given authority. And so in Jesus' day as they were looking for the Messiah they had that scripture from Daniel chapter 7 about the son of man. And so when Jesus is referring to himself as the son of man. He's tying back into this Old Testament prophecy of this great king, this Messiah, who was divinely ordained of God to be his ruler over all mankind. Now, remember that then, that the rest of the story that we've seen here it, at Christmas in, in, this, in this program is not just of a random birth, a happenstantial birth, something that just happened to come together at the right time. This was a chosen birth of a chosen one who was to be God's ordained king over his kingdom. It was prophesied for hundreds, indeed thousands of years in advance. The rest of the story was in the title of Jesus that he was the son of man. But notice what else. He said to them in verse 31, the son of man is delivered into the hands of men and they shall kill him. Not only do we see the rest of the story in the title of the son of man, but in the treatment of the son of man. The treatment of the son of man. Notice what is said here. The Son of Man is delivered into the hands of men, and they shall kill him. Jesus was telling his disciples, this king, this Messiah, is not going to have the immediate treatment of men falling down before him and worshiping him. He will be betrayed into the hands of men. The Son of Man into the hands of men. Now, just think about that for a moment. The one who came to be God's king was betrayed and killed by the people he came to save. It is not saying 
the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of aliens. Or that great chimpanzee uprising that we're all very concerned about, I'm sure. This is not about that. He will be betrayed by his own. As John 1 says, he came unto his own, and his own received him not. What did they do? They killed him. Now, this reveals at least two things about the rest of the story for us that we should take very seriously. The first one is this. It shows us the brokenness of ourselves. Do you know one human being, and only one, has perfectly lived God's desire for mankind to love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength, to love God supremely, and to love his neighbor as himself, to love others selflessly. Love God supremely, love others selflessly. Those are, two of, those are God's two great duties for mankind. One person came to live that perfectly, and do you know what they did? They killed him in the most shameful and painful way that humanity has ever conceived. What does that say about us? When the person to reflect the very nature and character of God comes to earth. As Jesus tells us in that parable, God, in the picture of God, he says, surely they will reverence my son. Surely they will honor and respect my son. And humanity hung him on a cross and killed him. It shows us how desperately wicked and broken we are as a race that instead of recognizing the character of God in Jesus Christ, the one who gave himself entirely to heal the sick, to give liberty to those that were set at captive, to reach out and touch those who were left behind by the world, to give himself selflessly for all instead of recognizing you are the one from God, they said no. They said we are the ones who are from God. And your character, your nature is a, is, is a threat to who we are. You see, the whole point of this Christmas story is that those who were the religious of the day, those who were in places of government authority in that day, reflected their own brokenness, their own blindness in ways that we see even to today. But the second thing that we need to see about this is it reveals why Jesus needed to die in the first place. Why did Jesus need to be killed? Why did he need to be betrayed? It was because, as the scripture tells us, that for hundreds of years before it was prophesied that someone needed to come to die for us. Isaiah chapter 53, the great prophet of Israel, Isaiah testified of Jesus, of this suffering servant that would come to bear our griefs, to bear our sorrows, that with his stripes, the whip going across his back, we would be healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned, we have wandered, everyone to his own way, a picture of our brokenness, of our rebellion. And the Lord has laid on him, this suffering servant, the iniquity, the sin of us all. Why did Jesus need to die? Because he needed to reveal our brokenness as humanity, and he needed to die in its place. Paul says, he tells us in the epistle to the Corinthians, he says that, that, that he became sin for us. Actually became, if you will, sin for us, even though he knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. You see, Jesus' is, is, is death on the cross teaches us that none of us 
can appeal to God by our own performance. None of us can have a relationship that is based on how we did or how we have kept God's commandments. Because ultimately, our brokenness, our sin, holds us back from his presence. See, all of humanity recognizes it's a desire in all of our hearts across all religious traditions that something needs to happen to pay back sin and evil that is done here on this world. We revolt against the fact internally that Hitler will not face consequence for his actions. I was in a Lyft car the other day heading to the airport and I was talking to a very nice woman who was a Buddhist and the conversation went to spiritual things and I was sharing a little bit about my faith with her and I asked her, what do Buddhists believe about eternal punishment, about, about retribution for sin and for evil? What happens to Hitler? I remember her, this Buddhist, telling me, she said, well, well, Hitler, he has to just come back as lower and lower life forms until he kind of gets it right, until he figures it out, the idea of reincarnation. Well, that's crazy, right? To any of us who know what the Bible teaches about life after death, there, it is appointed unto men once to die, and after this, the judgment. That's not what the Bible teaches. But in any event, I thought it was very interesting that even she, a Buddhist, recognizes something needs to happen to someone who perpetrates that kind of evil, that kind of outrage. If there is a God, certainly he must be a just one to prosecute wrongdoing. And friends, the question that should come back to all of us is what about my wrongdoing? What about my sin? What about my selfishness? What about my failure to love God supremely and to love others selflessly? What will a just God do about that? From the Old Testament, Scripture tells us that this God will by no means clear the guilty. He will by no means turn a blind eye to my sin and to yours. And what that means is there is no amount of my good works, no amount of my performance, no amount of doing good things in the eyes of the world that will allow me to have a relationship with God. A while ago, I went to the Grand Canyon with with my wife on a trip to Arizona. And if any of you have been to the Grand Canyon, you know you cannot possibly imagine the scope of this site that's before you. It just blows away anything you can imagine. And you can imagine that if one of you were to go there and decide, I'm going to try to clear the Grand Canyon in a single leap. There are probably most of you that wouldn't get very far. I'm not trying to be offensive, but it's just just the truth. You wouldn't get very far. There may be a few of you that would get out a little bit farther than others. And if you were Carl Lewis in your prime or the greatest long jumper in the, in, in the world today, you'd get out farther than anybody. But you wouldn't come close to clearing the Grand Canyon. And in the same way, all those who believe that their righteousness before God, I'm going to heaven because I've done good things, is just like that person who stands on the brink of the Grand Canyon and says, I can get across because I, I can jump farther than the guy next to me. I've done better than he has. I've done better than Hitler has. I can get there. No, friends, what's going to happen to your sin? How's that going to be dealt with? And so we see that Jesus had to die because there had to be a payment for sin. There had to be judgment. And our Bible teaches that instead of holding you accountable for your sin, all those who believe in Jesus Christ can have assurance that God is holding Jesus accountable for your sin. That's why he died. He died as a sacrifice in your place. 
That's the rest of the story. He was betrayed into the hands of men and he was killed. But you see, the rest of the story is, is not just about what Jesus was prophesied. It wasn't just about what he had to suffer. But thirdly, the rest of the story is his triumph. Do you see with me here? After that, he is killed. He shall rise the third day. He shall rise the third day. What does that mean? It means first that no amount of evil, no amount of human brokenness, no amount of government power, no amount of prejudice and bigotry, no amount of evil brought against him by the spiritual oppressor, the devil, none of those things could hold down Jesus Christ. Do you know what the early church said about Jesus? They called him Christus Victor. Christus Victor. Do you know what that meant to them? Christ the victor. Christ the conqueror. Because these people who were living under great oppression and great and persecution, like our brothers and sisters today all over the world, they knew that if Jesus couldn't be held down, if he triumphed, if he was the conquering victor, then they would too by light of their relationship with him. His victory would be their victory. But friends, it means something else very important. If Jesus rose again the third day, that means he's alive today. And he will never die again. It means that we relate to Jesus not like that baby in the manger we don't relate to him like some person hanging on a cross. We don't relate to him like some historical person that we just want to learn a little bit more about their biography. We relate to Jesus as a living person with a resurrected body who you can know and be known of today. That means Christianity is not learning facts like some archaeologist about what happened 2,000 years ago. It means having a relationship with a living person today who wants to know you and communicate with you. It means that you can know this Jesus forever in a new heaven and a new earth and relate to him like every other human being you exist and communicate with today. Jesus is alive. And if we're going to understand what the rest of the story is, friends, I want to pause here for just a moment and say, do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus is alive today? Do you believe that one day you will stand before him and see him just like you're seeing me right now and give account for your life, what you did and how you used the precious gift that God gave you? Do you believe, do you really believe that Jesus Christ holds your eternal destiny in his hand? He will decide whether you are admitted to heaven eternally or excluded? Do you believe that? And if you believe that, what next? You see, these disciples, they didn't know what the rest of the story was. Jesus was trying to tell them, but they didn't understand, and they were too afraid to 
ask what that rest of the story meant. But you and I have no excuse. We see the rest of the story. It's been written down for us. It's been communicated to us. Many of you sitting around this room would say, I've experienced it. I know the rest of the story for myself. And so therefore what? What does that mean? A couple of weeks ago, I went to a funeral and he was at a Roman Catholic church and the priest was doing this funeral for a, the father of one of my former colleagues and friends. And this seemed to be just a wonderful man, the kind of dad that kids should have. The kids testified to how wonderful he was as a father, how wonderful he was as a husband, so committed to them and to their life. It's a great guy. I remember the, the, the priest sharing as he got up for the homily. He said, you know, I went to visit him before he died. And he said, he said I, I felt like there was a question that may have been on his mind. A question is all in our mind. He says, and, and that question is, did I do enough? Did I do good enough? And I'm sitting there in the audience and I'm like, oh man. The preacher in me is thinking, I, I know what he's going to say. He's going to say it's not about whether, whether you did good enough. It's about what Jesus did. And I'm just thinking, all right, this, this is how he's going to bring it out. He didn't. He simply said, well, that's the question for all of us. But you know, what's going to happen is, is Jesus is just going to run out and he's just going to give us a big hug and he's going to say, thanks for making me known here on earth. And I just, my heart just sank. Here's hundreds of people in this room ready to hear what Jesus Christ did on their behalf. And it's not about their performance. It's not about how good they did. It's about what he did and whether they have trusted him and him as a living person for their eternal life. And it never came out. But friends, here today, if you know the rest of the story, the question is, have you accepted the rest of the story? Have you accepted and embraced Jesus Christ as a living person for the forgiveness of your sins and your sole hope in life and in death? And then secondly, beyond that, are you living like it? If you say that you believe that you have embraced this rest of the story, have you given yourself to him? As Paul says in Romans chapter 12, after he's told us the rest of the story, what this gospel means for himself, he charges us to give ourselves as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is our reasonable service, our reasonable act of worship. There's a man named C.T. Studd, a British man, who lived a couple hundred years ago. He, he gave away a millionaire's fortune he left behind one of the most promising and famous careers as an athlete in the entire uh, uh, country of Great Britain. He was one of the great cricketers of the day. He went to be a missionary in China and India and Africa across this long service. And C.T. Studd said these words. He said, if Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make. For him. See, that was a man who knew the rest of the story, who believed the rest of the story, and who was willing to live like it. And this morning, in this Christmas season, as we see part of the story, I hope that you will take for yourself the rest of the story as it's given here in the book of Mark. Believe it. Embrace it for yourself. 
And just as importantly, live like it.